Caravella Coffee Talks are back, a space created to speak with thought leaders, to exchange knowledge and share perspectives. In these talks, the Relationship Building Team invites you to attend sessions with female leaders in the industry. We will hear about their aha moments, life lessons, breakthroughs, and how we can make coffee better together. Over the years, we have seen how the representation of women in the industry has gained traction and has flourished. Join us for some inspiration. Hello, my name is Marisabel Vasquez, Marketing Manager at Caravel. Hi, I'm Ana Sofia Narvaez, Relationship Builder at Caravel. This week, we are pleased to present a different conversation focused on Robusta Coffee and its production in India with her special guest, Professor Sunalini Menon. She's a pioneer in the Arabica and Robusta coffee industry in India. She has been a speaker at major industry events, conducted research on coffee quality, processing protocols, amongst others. In addition, she has worked with the Coffee Board of India, the Coffee Quality Institute, the Association of the Specialty Coffee and local organizations and government agencies in her home country. She's currently a board member of Tata Limited Group. Yes, I'm very excited that we're able to bring this conversation to our new listeners. She was actually my professor during the Italy Coffee Master Program in Italy back in 2018. So in this episode, she shares valuable information about her beginnings in coffee, how the role of women has changed over time in India. We also talked about what has been done to improve the quality of coffee produced in India with a special focus on Robusta coffee. The perception that people may have about this coffee, how to perform sensory assessment, and what to expect when you're copying coffee as well. So this is a fascinating conversation, and we hope that you enjoy it. Stay with us and keep listening. Welcome, dear listeners and coffee lovers. Today, we have the honor and pleasure of speaking with Professor Sinalini Menon from India. She is widely recognized in the coffee industry for her work, contributions, and commitment to making coffee better, not only in her country, but around the globe. So welcome, and thank you for giving us your time and speaking and sharing about India today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to all our listeners from different parts of the world. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Anna, for inviting me to be here today. It's morning for us, early morning for us in India. It's a very bright morning. It's been raining so heavily over the past few days. And I think perhaps, you know, this conversation with you must have alerted the rain god saying, we should make it bright and sunny so that you can enjoy a cup of coffee. So having said that, uh, you know, uh, as, I, as Anna said, I have been in coffee for a long time. I worked as a director of quality uh, in uh, Coffee Board of India, which is a statutory body under the government. And um, there again, you know, I was the only woman. And uh, I started my journey many years ago when uh, women were not encouraged to work in India. I mean, the philosophy was that when you attain a certain age of 18 or 19, uh, you know, you would get married and you would sort of just look after the home. Fortunately, I came from a family which was very, my parents and my grandparents were highly educated and they felt that there should not be a discrimination between boys and girls and girls should be as well educated and they should be financially independent. So I was very, very lucky. But then when I joined the board, as I mentioned, I was the only woman who managed to get in 
fighting with a whole group of men at the interview. They were all doctorates. I was just a master's in food technology. But then, you know, whenever a woman decides that, you know, she can win, I think she can win. And that's what I've been trying to put across to young entrepreneurs. If you have the courage, if you have the dream and you pursue the dream, you can achieve the dream. And I can say that from my own experience. So anyway, I got through, became the director, had a lot of battles. But then again, one more aspect I need to put across to young women, that knowledge is power. You have the knowledge and you know everybody will respect you. And I think respect is the stepping stone or the foundation to building yourself. So with that, I finished my career in the coffee board when the market got liberalized for coffee. You know, India, it was a cold marketing system where the coffee board of India used to market the coffee. So that's where I played a role, building standards, educating the farmers. And when they shifted to the private sector, I thought the excitement had moved out. So I moved out to the private sector, helped in setting up the lab called Coffee Lab. And today I head this lab. I looked up, look after all quality aspects of coffee throughout the value chain from the seed to the cup. So that is a little bit about myself. Wow, such a great journey. And thank you, thank you for sharing uh, those words, especially knowledge is power. I completely agree. And that's one of the way that we women can continue paving our path in this industry and in life through knowledge. I, I have a question uh, when it comes to, to India and, and now that you're leading Coffee Lab Limited. Maybe for our listeners that don't know much about India as a coffee producing country, but also consuming country. And, and thinking maybe of the past 10 years, what will you say are the biggest changes that the industry has faced um, in this coffee producing origin? You've asked me a very interesting question because uh, you know India was never on the map for coffee. We were always only on the map for tea. I mean, I still remember when I used to go to the SEA you know, and set up the booth Uh, for coffee when I worked in the coffee board of India. I can never forget people who come into my booth and say coffee. No, there must be an error. It has to be tea. And, you know, they would say, oh, otherwise it must be a poor quality coffee. It must be just a filler coffee and walk past the booth. And I used to feel very despondent saying, gosh, have we established ourselves so poorly in the market? Well, we had a lot of constraints because ours is really a not a coffee growing country. Ours is a tea growing country. But I think credit must really be given to the coffee farmers in India, to the coffee board of India, for all the excellent breeding research work that they carried out, and for the farmers to have executed it absolutely implicitly. I mean, I could really say that the two sectors of the board and the farmers have really built this industry today. Now, there is a third sector which you are now talking about, and that is the consuming sector. And that is, again, a very interesting arena to see in India. I mean, we were not a coffee drinking country and we still made major part drinks tea. But, you know, coffee has made an inroad into tea consumption, which is saying something about coffee drinking in India. You know, coffee is more expensive. I think we all need to acknowledge that because here in India, we don't drink it black. The national drink is coffee with milk and sugar. So milk and sugar are expensive. 
And today, of course, coffee prices have gone up, but that's just today. But if you take the past, coffee per se, a cup of coffee, would be twice, if not thrice, three times that of the cost of a cup of tea. Tea is easy to make. It's so simple. Whereas coffee brewing is a little more, you know, you've got to really understand the coffee bean to make a good cup of coffee. Thirdly, the shelf life of coffee is so limited. I need to have excellent packing material. Whereas tea, I don't need that. Tea was available today, even today, tea is available in every nook and corner. It was not available so in India for coffee. Today, things have changed. And thanks to the millennials and the Gen Zs, they are the ones, and perhaps to an extent, thanks to the pandemic, I mean, I wouldn't say thanks to the pandemic in other ways, because it's been an absolutely, what shall I say, one and a half years of, you know, innovating, one and a half years of looking within yourself, one and a half years of adjusting yourself, and one and a half years of realizing the potential that you have within yourself. And that's what happened in coffee. The young people, you know, they used to go into a cafe and drink a cup of coffee. Cafe boom came in in 1996 when the market got liberalized. That came in when the computers came into India. And here was this entrepreneur, coffee farmer, who set up the first coffee company, a cafe called Cafe Coffee Day in a busy thoroughfare in the coffee capital of India, Bangalore. And, you know, it was set up when computers came in. And he said, for an hour of surfing on the net, you can have a cup of free coffee. So you see, it brought in the young into the cafe and that's how the cafe culture built up. So when this pandemic came in, the coffee, the, yeah, the young millennials realized they could not go out and drink a cup of coffee. They started bringing coffee into their home. And what did the coffee companies do? Little, little young entrepreneurs started selling coffee on the net and e-commerce. I mean, we never heard of e-commerce before. Now everything is digital. I mean, you know, everything is app control. So much so that I had to learn so much about apps. You know, I learned things like Blue Jean. I said, I only know Levi's Blue Jean. I don't know anything else. And they said, well, you learned something in the apps today. So you see, coming to that, they started experimenting at home. They want to be a good barista at home. Coffee consumption has grown. Today, of course, the pandemic is much, much better. Cafes have opened up. The young people go to their cafes, they buy the coffee powder and bring it home. And I think today the whole mindset is different. It's no longer considered as coffee for the elderly or for the adult at home. Today it is coffee for the young, booming millennials and Gen Zs. There's been quite a transition in terms of how coffee is looked at in India. I hope that uh, explains. Yes, it completely it answers it answers the question and it also makes me think of how maybe in a different way or speed pace. Um, this also applies to Latin American countries and other consuming countries around the globe. Coffee has become more accessible. People have found ways to 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 say and share. You can make good coffee at home, and you don't necessarily need expensive equipment how can we make the best out of what we have available starting starting with a great coffee though like the base has to be a good a good coffee and this it's definitely changing the relationship people have with coffee and how they integrate it in their daily activities work and just you know for pleasure 
because we we drink it as a personal experience as, as well. Very true. Very true. I I like when you mentioned you know that in the past decades in India's reputation image as a country changed thanks to the work of the farmers, the coffee professionals, and also the local entities in the country. Do you think that producers revolutionize in a way the industry? Do you think that they are still kind of leading the way um, in terms of maybe innovation um, or is it more something about reacting to, to the trends? Because we are seeing a lot of trends in the coffee industry in terms of varieties, processing methods, and other things that are just happening and that maybe sometimes can be good for the coffees and sometimes not necessarily lead to good results. What do you think about this that is happening and how maybe this is affecting uh, or influencing coffees in, in India? I think it's a very good question because I mean, you know, I've been talking about innovations. It's so strange that you use the word innovations. Uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of presentations on innovations. Um, not only innovations, I put them in baskets saying innovations in cultivation, innovations in processing, innovations in roasting, innovations in brewing, innovations in packing, and innovations in new product development. So you see, there are so many innovations. I agree with you that, you know, innovations is required, but what we, we have been trying to tell the farmer is that his varietal first has to be good. He has to understand his varietal. No amount of innovation in terms of processing is going to bring about, you know, a marvelous change as he, or rather a grandiose change as he thinks it would. He has to first understand his varietal. He has to make sure that his cultivation practices are good. He has to make sure that he understands the method of processing. It's all very well to say carbonic maceration, double fermentation, anaerobic fermentation. In fact, yesterday someone was talking about submarine fermentation. I said, I love all your names. But then do you understand what are the microbial populations that develop in these you know, innovative methods of processing? You need to understand that. You need to understand that there are bacteria, there are yeast, there are fungi. And these are the three different groups you have to be really aware of. So I think first it starts with education and training, which is what we've been doing in the lab. We've been trying to educate the farmers saying, yes, you can do this innovative. First, understand your varietal, understand your cultivation practices, understand your altitude, understand your shade pattern. We are very lucky in India. We grow coffee under shade. Maybe it's a necessity, but it's highly sustainable. I mean, carbon emissions, wow, it really does a lot of sequestration. And the effect of the fruit trees on my coffee is absolutely, absolutely mind-blowing. If I have coffee growing under jackfruit, I have a certain flavor. If you ask me for the scientific explanation, I cannot give it to you right now, but people are working on it. So innovations, yes, but you need to understand what you're doing. You need to understand what the end result is. You need to check temperatures. You need to check pH. It is not just about mixing things like yeast with your coffee and saying, you know, I've got a great product. So I think I also need to understand what you as a buyer want from my cup of coffee. I need to understand your market requirements. 
And accordingly, look at my varietal, look at my cultivation, look at my processing, and look at how I present to you. I need to explain to you what I have in my cup, which is something which we are just now trying to explain to the farmer to understand that he also needs to market and present his coffee in the most appropriate manner. So I think innovations are becoming the order of the day today. But again, we're trying to explain to the farmer, there is a difference between an infused coffee and an expressive coffee. I've just coined the word expressive. Expressive is what is latent in the bean as a result of genetics. It is something that is present in the bean and how through processing, I can highlight those beautiful latent flavor bean flavors that are present in the bean. Infused coffee is what I put into the bean, which is not present. For example, I have today whiskey uh, barrel coffee, aged coffee. I have rum. Yesterday I tasted rum and I almost hit the roof because I just couldn't see the combination of rum and fruit. It was too much of an explosive, uh, uh, what shall I say, outcome in the cup. They have wine. Wine is beautiful. I mean, depends on the type of wine I infuse, like Shiraz, or whether it is, you know, a white wine. It depends on the type of uh, Chardonnay. Chardonnay comes out really well as an infused aged coffee. But I always say, make, tell the buyer, this is an aged infused coffee, and this is a natural expressive coffee. So I think education is really, really an absolute must. This, this brings me to something that we have worked and from my personal experience as well with small scale and medium scale farmers that in order for you to start experimenting with other, other processes and this doesn't necessarily mean like carbonic maceration or infused coffee, even like from moving from washed coffee to honeys to naturals is to really understand your soil, your plants, your varieties to have that whole understanding so you can start measuring from there because how will you know the best profile that you can get from this variety if you haven't tried with what you have available, right? And then the next thing is measure everything that you can so you can replicate or you can improve. Otherwise, how can you compare what went well and what went wrong. And the other is how can you make it scalable? Because maybe you were trying to experiment with one bag, two bags, but then the client's requirement is 10 bags, 10 bags, uh, and 20 bags. And the result can definitely change and it can lead not to a profitable result, but uh, a farmer can end up losing money and who can afford to lose money Um, mm -hmm. as, as a coffee producer, right? And the, and the other thing that, that you mentioned about infused coffee versus, you know, the intrinsic quality of the coffee. Um, this kind of lead us to transparency because we have like a bigger topic when it comes to saying, I added fruits or yes. something else to, to this coffee People can have allergic reactions. People yes. need to know what they're drinking. It's just, it's food safety. We cannot only change a coffee because we want to achieve a specific flavor, but we need to be, as coffee producers, as industry, transparent in terms of what we are offering 
to the person who's going to cop and buy that that coffee. So these things are very important and crucial if we want to continue innovating um, in a good way that is transparent towards the consumer, but also the green buyers. Very true. What you're saying is very true. And that's what we have started making the farmer understand this, recording every step of what he's doing, explaining to the buyer what is it that he has done, whether it's a water alchemy fermentation, whether it is what, you know, and one of the nicest things that I'm beginning to see is the buyer also asks you these very pertinent questions, which I think is very important. Because I think sometimes when the farmer doesn't want to be too very open, I think it's good for the buyer to say, listen, I want to know a little bit more about your coffee before I buy it. So that brings in a lot of transparency and a lot of relationship, you know, marketing. That's how you build a relationship, trust in each other. And I think to build that trust is so important today. And it also challenges the, the production side because we... We have been sharing a lot of information, of course, in terms of altitude processing method, maybe saying this X, Y, but now we are getting more into how you're doing it. And to really say how you did it, you need to go back and say, did I measure this? Um, how can I express it? So this uh, requires farmers to understand truly what they're doing. And with that comes knowledge and control. So it's, it is a great revolution, I will say, in terms of knowledge and education as well for everyone in the, in the supply chain. Um, and in a way, this brings me to my next question, Professor. You have the opportunity to navigate between Arabica production and also Robusta. Uh, for our listeners out there that maybe don't know about Robusta, um, what will you say, you know, is the main difference in terms not only of working with farmers that produce these two, um, Arabica and Robusta, but also in terms of processing, copying, and just really understanding these two um, species? I've always been asked this question because I think uh, India, we've been growing both uh, Arabicas and Robustas. And always, you know, when I go into any sort of a forum, the first question they ask me, hi, here's the Robusta person. Let's ask, in fact, about the Robusta lady. I think to myself, I'm very proud to be the Robusta lady because always Robusta has been considered a very poor cousin of Arabica. And that is a little bit unfortunate, but also I feel the farmers are, uh, you know, one of the causative factors for this reaction. Uh, it's like the chicken and the egg. Sometimes I don't know which comes first because the farmer, when I ask, he says, I don't get the price for it. So why should I worry too much about the processing? On the other hand, the buyer says the taste is so obnoxious. It's so woody. It's so stale. It's so rancid. It's so dirty. It is, you know, it's got all the dirt in it. So why do I have to pay a price for it? So you see, we are in a conundrum, you know, which comes first, the price or the quality? So, but I think uh, in India, we have been able to traverse and get over this point of saying that Robusta is a poor cousin of Arabica, or I always call it the ugly duckling, which turned into a beautiful swan. So I think in India, we've been able to prove that. 
you know, from the inception of coffee robusta cultivation in India that goes back to the 1900s, when the Arabica almost got wiped out in India because of leaf rust. You know, there are 43 or 44 strains of leaf rust and every year there's something up coming up, but we know how to deal with it. If you talk about leaf rust, I'm not scared at all. I say, oh, leaf rust 42, I can deal with it. You know, we've got into that because our breeding programs are very well suited to combating rust. In fact, we have now a very beautiful varietal which has been launched. This beautiful cupping notes got a good yield. At the same time, it's able to combat leaf rust naturally. So you see, coming back to the Robusta in 1900s, when Arabica got almost wiped out, we got the Robusta coming in from Sri Lanka. In fact, Sri Lanka got wiped out because of leaf rust. We had the first varietal coming in or the cultivar called Peradinia, named after the gardens in Sri Lanka, the beautiful gardens in Sri Lanka called Peradinia. That came in, it did very well. They, they did a lot of, you know, the one thing we must give credit to our research and breeding programs, excellent to suit Indian conditions. I don't have those exotic strains of Geisha, Katura, Katuai, Ikatu, you can, so many names. And I feel kind of sad, start my art, it'll never grow in India. But then people have always been telling me, you have unique varietals, so why are you worried? You don't may have not have Geisha, but you have selection nine, you have selection seven, nine, five. We're all very mathematical wizards. We're not very romantic in our names, unfortunately. So we have these well-suited to Indian conditions, growing very well. So what did we do with the Robusta? We did a lot of breeding work and brought out a beautiful varietal called Congenesis into Robusta. It's from the Congo region. They crossed it with the Robustas, the Peradinia's child called Selection 274. And we have such a wonderful variety. Bold beans, excellent in the cup, very buttery, very mild, very soft, got a little bright acidic nuances and, you know, as an undercurrent. And it doesn't have a finish which is bitter, a finish which is buttery, smooth, and a little bit of brightness with flecks of bitterness in it beautiful coffee, I can use it in a variety of ways. I can even use it as a straight neat coffee. So you see Robusta, I would say it depends on the varietals that you have. You know, you have to have a good variety. That's very important. You have to treat it exactly like how you treat your Arabica. You have to treat it with respect. You have to process it very, very carefully. The mucilage in Robusta is very thick. It's not easy to extricate it. In fact, coffee is supposed to be an indehiscent fruit, meaning it is difficult to extricate the seed from the fruit. And this is seed that we drink and we don't eat the pulp or the mucilage. So you see to extricate it from the Robusta is very difficult. But if I master that processing, you know, the fermenting time for Robusta in India is very long. It's about 36 hours. And I have to be very careful with that fermentation. I need to make sure there's enough oxygen for the bacteria to survive so that not too many of the, the bad yeast, the filamentous, the fungi yeast take over. I don't want that to take over. So I try to do some wet fermentation. It's difficult. I use a lot of water for preparing washed robustas. I now moved into a segment of honeys. Well, I can get some absolutely mind-boggling, delicious honeys with Robusta. So you need to understand your bean. You need to, as you, as you rightly also you know, highlighted, the altitude. We grow coffee at even 3,500, at even 4,000 feet, we have Robustas. And those Robustas are excellent. 
So we've started focusing on field processing. I've gone into another arena to get altogether, not just mass processing of a coffee. I go field wise. I look at each field or each block, study this pH. I study the organic carbon content. I study the shade pattern. I study the altitude. And I study the variety, the age of that variety, and then to my processing to understand what is it that is latent in the bean, which I can highlight in the cup. And I also try and understand what is it that the buyer wants from a robuster bean. There are some buyers who only want strength from that cup of coffee. There are other buyers who want to use it neat. In Germany, we have it, you know, as uh, a pure Indian robusta roasted with a farmer's caricature on the packet who speaks volumes about that farmer. And it, it highlights the cleanliness, the brightness, and the complexity of flavors. So today, if you were to ask me, I think I can give you a delicious robusta which can compete with my Arabica. I would say both of them are equal partners. I cannot say this is better than that. I would like to put them on the same platform. Each one has its own uses. Arabica gives me the flavors much quicker. I can see the bottom of an Arabica cup much easier, but I can't see the bottom of my Robusta cup. It's so full of colloids, it's so strong. And at the same time, it sort of complements the Arabica in terms of the mildness of the mouthfeel that is present in the Arabica. I wanted to share that back in 2018, I had the opportunity to cop different Robusta coffees. Uh, some of them were from Congo, some others from Guatemala and Mexico. And this was really an eye-opening experience that led me to, to the following thinking. Um, every coffee has a market. Yes. Um, so we need to find that home for that coffee, right? What do you look for when you are copying Robusta? What do you have like in mind? Because we, we cannot cop the same way we cop Arabica, right? That we look for sweetness, acidity, kind of changing our mindset. Um, if I get to cup a Robusta coffee, what do I need to look for? Uh, a good question because uh, I've, always, I've always been asked this question, how do I taste Robusta coffee? And I just put it in very simple terms. First of all, keep an open mind. Don't judge, don't be judgmental before you even put the spoon into your palate. So keep an open mind. And when you look into the cup, look beyond the bitterness. See, that is the first thing that will hit you when you put a spoonful of Robusta into your palate, into your mouth. The first the sensory perception of the, the sense of taste that hits you is bitterness. But you need to navigate beyond the bitterness. Keep an open mind and say, okay, let me put the bitterness in a separate basket. Let me remove it. And let me start looking at the other finer aspects of the cup. Let me look at the mouthfeel. Mouthfeel will hit you very, very, you know, immediately it hits you. Of course, it depends on the methodology of processing. If I were to process it in the washed method, and if I have processed it very carefully, I'll have a very refined, delicate, smooth, soft mouthfeel. If I've made it into a natural coffee and I have taken a lot of care in ensuring that I've picked only ripe red cherries, which taste sweet, 
Now, I always tell the farmer, it's not just the color of the cherry that's important, it's the taste of the cherry. Put a few cherries into your mouth, see how sweet it is. Because I have seen that the color variants and the taste are really not very directly related. Sometimes I have to pick the cherries in a blackish red condition in order to get the sweetness in my cup. And there are other farms which have just an orange color in order to get my sweetness. So you see, there are different yardsticks, different bricks readings. I always now start talking about bricks, but I know the small farmers cannot afford all that or don't have the inclination to do it. So I said, listen, you can eat, right? You can taste it, right? And you enjoy walking from field to field, putting, popping a couple of cherries into your mouth. And now everybody enjoys doing that. So I think when I come into robusta evaluation, I look beyond the bitterness. I look at the mouthfeel depending on the type of processing. If it's a honey, it's a beautiful in-between stage for a robusta. I not only get a nice smooth mouthfeel, which is fairly strong, but I also have brightness. Now here, when I look at the scoring system, the score sheet is very differently worded. It says salt acid ratio. Now you must be asking, what is the salt acid ratio? One thing I must admit that Robusta tasting is not as simple or as straightforward as an Arabica tasting. Arabica just jumps out of the cup. Robusta says, I'm mysterious, dwell deeper into my cup. So I really have to dwell deeper into my cup. So when I look at the salt acid ratio, do remember that in Robusta, it is not sodium, but it's potassium. Potassium has a different taste profile to sodium. So that is why I need to evaluate the ratio. If I have too much of potassium, my acidity is down. My brightness is low in the cup. And so if my uh, potassium content is not very high, it depends on so many factors, like your varietal, your cultivation practices, like your altitude, the way I've processed it. So then I will find the acidity really coming up beautifully. And I find that if I do fermentation with yeast, my, the yeast plays a great role in reducing or submerging the potassium and highlighting the acidic nuances, the organic acid content in the robusta. Of course, it's much lower, a different organic acid composition compared to Arabica. The next attribute, which is again, very important, which perhaps is easy as most of my cuppers would say, oh, it's so easy to find out the bittersweet ratio. It's not easy because the bitterness is a lot more stronger than the sweetness. So I have to put aside the bitterness and evaluate the sweetness in terms of the, the intensity of sweetness, which is perhaps a little difficult, but also as the quality of sweetness. You know, sweetness also has qualities. You know, it can be sour sweet, or it can be salt sweet, or it could be sweet sweet. So I need to look at that, or it could be sweet bitter. So is it sweet bitter or is it bittersweet? So I need to evaluate that. And flavors, you know, it's, it's very surprising, you know, very unbelievable, because most often people would say, is this dark chocolate, bitter chocolate and caramel? But I see beyond that. I see citrus. You know, I can have lots of nice orange in it. I can have flecks of lemon in it. I can even have sometimes a little bit of green apple in it. And I could even have berries in it. But in fact, I won't use the word berries. I probably will use the word cherries. So you see, it has complexity of flavors. It is how you process it, the varietal that you have, the cultivation practices you followed, and I think how you have processed and presented it to the buyer.
or to a consumer. At, at the end, it's not only, you know, disregarding the variety because we have this thinking of bitterness, but really, like you said, looking deep into each of the layers that the coffee has and offers, like we do in Arabica, because we, we also do it in a different in a different way. And when you mentioned about bittersweet or sweet bitter, we also have like, we can have a scale in terms of sweetness for, for Arabica. Um, someone can easily say, if, even if you don't have experience that refined sugar doesn't taste like honey. And when you get into honey, there are different types of honeys yes. that, that you can taste and identify where they were grown, the flowers, everything. So I think, I'm trying to think, you know, like from like copying Robusta and, and trying to have that, that mindset. So it will be in a way the same, but with other uh, attributes, with other descriptors and maybe with other levels of intensity as well. Very true, very true. It's a beautiful coffee, I can tell you. I can tell all my listeners that Robusta is a beautiful bean. Uh, you know, it is not an ugly duckling, it's a beautiful swan. To everyone who's listening to this conversation, if you get to cup Robusta coffee, please let us know what was your first impression or if you changed your mind when it comes to um, copying and tasting. Uh, sorry, I just want to add just one more point to what you were talking to the listeners. Don't roast your robusta duck. We make that error when we're roasting. You know, when you're doing even a cupping protocol, don't roast it dark. I mean, I think, uh, in fact, I was telling CQI, we probably need to take a review of the uh, robusta standard for roasting, you know, that it's slightly darker than the Arabica. I would like to bring it down to the same level as the Arabica, the same profile. Because I think that is one mistake that we often make with Robusta. We always dark roasted thinking that we get more of the soluble solids into the cup. But actually what we're doing is we're reducing the soluble solids and increasing the bitterness. So to those of listeners, I'm sorry I interrupted what you were saying, but just a little point, don't roast it dark, roast it the same level as Arabica cupping protocol. And even when you are preparing a cup of coffee, if you want to drink it neat and straight, don't make it dark make it light to medium and roast and you, you'll enjoy the cup of robusta coffee and please let us know your your thoughts and insights uh, when you get to taste robusta throughout these talks we have highlighted a lot women leadership the different roles that women play in the coffee industry whether it be as a farmer exporter green coffee buyer um Professor like you, that you have had different roles in the in the industry. What do you think we we can do, or uh, what are your suggestions in terms of supporting the next generation of not only women but young people, the ones that are going to lead the way in maybe twenty years, forty years, or more? I think the first basic point that you know we need to understand is that uh, you know the woman is multifaceted. You, she can do anything. I mean, I've seen it uh, perhaps in my own role 
I looked after the home. I, you know, I, I, I sort of got myself educated. I got myself trained. I got married. I looked after a home. I raised my, my child and I did a profession. And, you know, uh, so they are multifaceted. We, you know, we, we are very conscientious. Our attention to detail is simply superb. I'm not saying that I'm not comparing it to a man and saying he doesn't have it. I'm only talking about the woman per se. You know, she has got the determination, the strength and the perseverance. I see it in my own office. I have, you know, when I took up, when I set up this lab with the help of others, um, I decided that I'll take only women, mainly because women were never given an opportunity. We never had an opportunity. I was just lucky. That's about all. I was lucky that I had, uh, you know, this, uh, the boss who was recruiting me, who had an open mind, who said women should also be encouraged. And let's give her a chance. I was just given a chance. And it's just that the chance built in me the resilience to say, I'll prove it to you that I can do it. So I think if I look at my own lab, I took in mainly women. And you know, when I give the task to you know today and I say, hey, this has to be completed today, the woman will say, I will finish it today and only then go home. The man will say, I'll come tomorrow morning, ma'am. What's the hurry? I'll do it tomorrow morning. So you see, there is a difference. I'm not saying both are right or both are wrong, but I'm just saying that our you know, our conscience makes us sit up and say, hey, I've received something from someone, I need to give it back. Or not just give it back, I need to give it back in a good measure. So I think what I would probably, you know, tell young the coffee companies is give us women a chance, give us a chance, train us. We're willing to be. You know, we may not have that experience or the knowledge base, but we have that will and the determination to learn and to exceed and to excel. So give us that opportunity to get trained. Very often, you know, when training comes up, I still remember. Uh, when I was working in the governmental organization, when it came to training, they would only always hesitate to give me a chance saying, you know, she'll get married and leave and all our training will be a waste. I think that has changed today. I mean, I must say today, things are much, much better. Today, I find women in every sphere of uh, every walk of the coffee value chain. I have young women setting up cafes doing very well, young women wanting to be roasters, young women, in fact, wanting to help the tribal community of coffee farmers. And I think that is something which has been a wrap, really a change in India. So I would say coffee companies, give us a chance, give us an opportunity, give us training and give us equal opportunities. Don't sideline us when it comes to decision-making. We are also equally sensible. So give us an opportunity to voice our opinion. And I think that has been another change in India. Today, a coffee company which is listed, a company, not just coffee company, any company which is listed on the stock exchange has to have a woman on its board. She can be an independent director or an executive director, but you need to have at least one woman. And that's how I came on to the board of Tata Coffee. And, you know, it's quite an experience for me to see myself sitting there amongst all the learned men. I mean, all of them are highly, you know, or shall I say educated, highly experienced. And I sit there, but I think that we, when we are put to a challenge, we rise to the challenge. We want to equip ourselves and, you know, to make sure that we are, you know, our presence is felt, uh, that we talk sense, and that we are sort of advancing our own ability to improve and to excel. 
So I think coffee companies, uh, you know, it would be a good opportunity for them to give us a chance to train us, to educate us, to give us an opportunity to speak our minds, and at the same time uh, to value what all that we do. Just to give you an example of a large multinational here in India who sell a lot of detergents, they formed self-help groups of women in the rural area. And they educated them on cleanliness, sanitation, and hygiene. And at the same time, gave them these various detergents and said, go now and in the rural areas, sell these products, educate the masses. It was a win-win for both. The company was able to sell their products. The women were able to train families in cleanliness, hygiene, and sanitation. So I think there is a win-win for both. There is a win for women and there is a win for the coffee company. So I think it would be great if there is a synergism between the two, the facets of the coffee company and the women young leader. So thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Sinalini, for, for this conversation, for sharing your knowledge. Uh, about coffee, especially Robusta. This has been quite fascinating to hear directly from you. Thank you very, very much. It's such a pleasure to see you after so many years. And as we were just talking a little earlier, coffee is all about friendship. You know, once you meet a person, you build that little bond. I don't know what it is that coffee does it. And as I use the words, it's very romantic, you know. It, it goes in different ways. The romanticism can be described in many ways. It can be respect, it can be love, it can be, you know, uh, adoring a person. And it also, uh, you know, brings in that spark of remembrance, uh, togetherness. And I think it's such a stimulating uh, beverage that, uh, you know, you can never forget a person once you meet them in the coffee world. So thank you again for connecting with me. And as a young entrepreneur yourself, or as a young, uh, what shall I say, a young leader in your own sphere, I wish you all the very, very best and do pursue your dream. I always remember Walt Disney's lines. He said, if you have a dream, pursue the dream and only then you can realize it. Great insights about India and Rebosa Coffee production discussed today. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will have our very last episode of this season with Kimberly Eason. This is an episode that you cannot miss. And if you have missed any of our earlier episodes, they are all available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. So see you there. Bye. See you next week. <laughs>